Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family Radio. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. We're getting near to the end of Luke, and today I ask the big question. What is the main message of the gospel? What's the main point of the gospel of Luke, or maybe the gospel according to Matthew or Mark? What's the main message? And my guess is that most of your family members don't know. And there's even a good chance that your children's catechist or your Catholic school teachers don't know. And today, You may have heard me before on my companion radio show, Luke 21 Radio, mention what we're going to be talking about today. I've even talked about it on Faith and Family Radio. But this is the main message. And, you know, I can't help but think that it's so appropriate that during the Mass, during the procession of the Mass and the deacon carrying the Gospels lifted high, such a central place in our whole worship of God, we should know what the main message of the gospel is, and we should be able to articulate that in a sentence or two. So, if you want to find the main message of the gospel, there is not a better place to look than the sign of the cross of Jesus Christ. As he was being crucified, the formal charge against Jesus by the Roman state, by Pilate, was the sign on the cross. And it's recorded for us in all four Gospels. Since we're starting in Luke, we'll go to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 36, right before the sign. It says, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They were mocking him. They were mocking him regarding his claim to kingship. Hit number one. Next verse, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. That was the formal charge against Jesus. If we go to the gospel according to John, John 19, 19, it says, Pilate also wrote a title and put it on a cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The next verse says, many of the Jews read this title. It was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. In other words, Don't miss this, folks. This is like a neon sign in American business. Like, pay attention to this. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, uh, the languages of the ancient world, particularly in the Middle East and throughout the Roman Empire. You can't miss this. Jesus is king of the Jews. And the message of all four Gospels, the message of the entire Gospel of Luke is that the long-awaited Messiah is Jesus Christ. The Messiah is the king of the Jews, and he's also the king from the Jews 
to be the king of the entire world. And that is the main message of the Gospels. Now, when I say this, and we have many songs we sing today, hymns, that declare, particularly the older hymns, declare the kingship of Jesus and such. And when we sing those, I just don't know if we really comprehend what we're singing about, particularly here in the United States. Why? Because we don't have a tradition of having any type of king. So when we kind of have this idea that Jesus is this messianic king, it's kind of a free-floating idea in our mind because we don't have any kind of other earthly kingship to really tie it to. In fact, the origin of our country was more or less a rejection of kingship. Now, as a result, what very frequently happens, even in conservative Catholic, conservative Protestant circles, is we make Jesus into a quasi-king. And we say something like, well, Jesus is the king and Lord of my heart. Well, that's good, and that's wonderful, that's desirable, and that's noble, but has, has nothing to do with the essential message of all four Gospels. The message of the Gospels isn't that Jesus is king of my heart, is that he is the king of our nation. He is the king of our world, and we've reduced him, uh, in many cases, through the secular pressers, pressures uh, trying to reduce our religious freedom to within four walls, but we take it a step further voluntarily. Well, he's the Lord of my heart. No, he's the Lord of the world. Yes, he can also be the Lord of your heart, but that's not the main message of the Gospels. It's about him and who he is. And the context of this was Caesar. At this time, the Roman emperor was just beginning to take upon himself the claims of divinity. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The Bible speaks about, at some point in the future, this is going to come back at us with a force that we have never seen in our lifetime and can even comprehend. At some point, we read that there is going to come a time where there will be a world leader who will claim for himself divinity and require worship, exactly what Caesar did in the first century. So in a certain sense, the first century is going to be very much like the last century. But let's just go back to the basic concept of the kingship of Christ. And I want to share with you some of the information I found from a New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, and he has a book entitled, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Now, N.T. Wright isn't just a little um, kind of like sideline uh, biblical scholar. He's been a professor at Oxford, Cambridge, and St. Andrews. These are very prestigious universities. Newsweek called N.T. Wright the world's leading New Testament scholar, and perhaps he is. And this is what he says, quote, We come now to the central claim of this book. 
all four Gospels are telling the story of how God became king in and through the story of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the central theme of the Gospels. Christians in the West, and I'll just add my PS, particularly here in the United States, have failed even to glimpse, let alone preach, the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling us the story of how God became king in and through Jesus. That's the central message of the gospel. Now, again, this reduction to the kind of like this quasi-king where Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, well, yes, it has to be personal. I've done entire broadcasts. I'm writing a book on having this personal encounter with Jesus. But essentially, the gospel is about Jesus, not about me. The, the, and when we know who Jesus is, there's in a certain sense our loyalty, our faithful loyalty to his kingship. If you look in the epistle to the Romans, it's kind of missed a lot, but there's bookends. At the very first chapter and very last chapter of Romans, it speaks about the obedience of faith, uh, the obedience to the kingship of Jesus. St. Paul was writing to the hometown of Caesar, but he was asserting that faith has a loyalty or obedience to the kingship of Jesus. And so today, if Jesus is really and truly the present, not future, the present Lord, King, and sovereign of every civil government, every family, and every individual, then Christianity is something radically different from what most of us think of as a religion. I'm going to go back to N.T. Wright just for a second. He goes, Paul's missionary work must be conceived not simply in terms of a traveling evangelist offering people a new religious experience, but of an ambassador for a king, establishing cells of people loyal to this new king and ordering their lives accordingly. In other words, what is the church? It's this cell of the kingdom of God on earth in a period of time where you have people totally and completely oblivious and perhaps opposed to the kingship of Christ and others totally loyal to the kingship of Christ, so loyal, in fact, that their practical lives, not just Sunday morning, because Jesus isn't just Lord of the sanctuary, he's Lord of the world, of my business life, my home life, my sports life, my social life. He's Lord of all of it, and so we order our lives accordingly. And this is a big, big, big problem in America. We have a lot of good people who believe in Jesus, but reduce his reign to a little segment of their lives instead of their entire lives. Um, N.T. Wright goes on, he says that the early Christians, including St. Paul among them, would not have recognized themselves and their movement under the Enlightenment's shrunken definition of religion. And again, it's, it's just, it's pulled inward to the point that it's just in my heart. 
And this is pretty radical stuff, but N.T. Wright goes on, perhaps Paul should be taught as much in the political departments of our universities as in the religious department. Think about this. The essential message of the Gospels is the kingship of Christ that has come through the Messiah, Jesus, king of the Jews, and because he's king of the Jews, he's king for the whole world. Now, there's people who go ballistic in our day about Christianity, the new atheist, and the new this and the new that, the new pagan forces and everything else. But if you want to see somebody go totally ballistic, completely ballistic, start asserting the kingship of Christ, not over just your life, but over the world, over the nation, over your community. You know, the, um, the early Christians weren't fighting lions in the Colosseum because of their belief that Jesus was Lord of their hearts, king of their hearts. Caesar would have no problem with that. There are a multitude of religions that um, so long as they didn't touch the supreme authority in the world, Caesar claimed that for himself. And again, someday in the future, we're going to run into the exact same situation, perhaps worse than when Caesar was persecuting Christians. And they gave their lives for the kingship of Jesus over the world. That's why they went to the Colosseum. Now, maybe, just maybe, uh, we're, we're losing our place in the world because we've lost an essential ingredient of proclaiming the gospel. The whole notion of the word gospel comes from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. And the Old Testament comes to us in two forms, originally in Hebrew, and then it was in Greek. And that Greek Old Testament was the Septuagint. And the nice part of that Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, is that you can compare it word for word with words in the New Testament. And the Greek words for gospel and evangelism are found in Isaiah 52.7. And in Greek, if you look at it, it you know, in English, let's just, let's start with English. The words evangelism and the word gospel appear to be radically different. But in Greek, they're just first cousins. They're very, very close to each other. One's a noun form, one's a verb form. So to evangelize is to spread the gospel. The gospel is evangelism. And this is Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings or good news, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good. And this is basically repeating uh, who brings the gospel, who evangelizes the gospel. This is what it's saying in the original languages. It says, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, okay, this is the gospel, this is evangelism, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's kingship words. That's the essence of the good news. Now, this 
passage or portion of this passage, Isaiah 52, 7, is found right in the epistle to the Romans, the first Roman Catholics who were living in the capital of the empire. And it quotes this, the, the reign of Christ, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, and that's the essence of the good news. Now, if you were running around the Roman empire and just heard about a gospel, uh, a euangelium, it's the root word of evangelize, it would could be the announcement that the Caesar had had a male child who's going to inherit his throne. It was a royal announcement. A gospel proclamation was a kingly royal announcement. And the gospel is <laughs> the essence of those four books that we carry in procession in mass is that Christ is king. And this is more like a royal herald than what we normally think of as a religion teacher or a theology expert. This has implications for all of life. And there's a seriousness to this because according to Psalm 2, I'm not going to um, cite the whole psalm or portion of it for you today, but according to Psalm 2, and a papal encyclical that kind of goes right along with Psalm 2. It's the papal encyclical called Quas Primus, or it's the encyclical by Pius XI on the kingship of Christ. It's both speak about an obligation that civil governments have to explicitly acknowledge Jesus Christ as king over their country or face extinction. Have you heard that lately? Have you even heard that lately over Catholic radio? This is what Pius XI said, 1925, Quash Primus. You can get the encyclical on the EWTN website. It's not available in print in many places, but this is what it says. Quote, with God and Jesus Christ excluded from political life, with authority derived not from God, but from man, the result is that human society is tottering to its fall because it no longer has a secure and solid foundation. See, most of us have been taught to think that the ultimate authority, not the participation authority in the voting public, but I'm talking about the ultimate authority is from we the people. It's from man. No, the ultimate authority over any country should be derived from God, not from man. And if you switch from God to man, that becomes a weak foundation that given enough social pressure or calamity or crisis or whatever, it'll crack. Now, somebody might say, what, Steve, we are a nation under God. Just look at a dollar bill. Well, there's a difference between one nation under a generic God and one nation under Jesus Christ. Which one do you think God commands? Okay, think about this. Not what we prefer, not what we vote for. Which one of these options, one nation under God, or one nation under Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read three verses 
from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, and you tell me the answer. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Jesus is the universal king to the glory of God the Father. That is heaven's explicit will for every nation and every part of this globe. Now you say, well, people aren't doing that. No, they're not. And that's why we're, we're at great speed running towards all kinds of problems that we can't perhaps even imagine in the history of the world. You know, one of the most tragic things that ever happened to this country was the Civil War. Um, and the more you study it, the more you see just, uh, it was just unbelievable the way that brother would fight against brother and and fellow countrymen fighting against other countrymen, and it was a bloody, horrible mess. And after the Civil War, some people sensed that there was a weakness in our Constitution that, that led to the division in our country, and they thought, you know, we're going to have to just define more carefully who we are as a people. And so a group of Christians proposed an amendment to the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, and it went like this. We, the people of the United States, humbly acknowledging Almighty God as the source of all authority and power in civil government, and the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler among nations his revealed will as the supreme law of the land in order to constitute a Christian government and in order to form a more perfect union. That proposed constitutional amendment was passed on to President Abraham Lincoln, and he endorsed the proposal. He said, quote, the general aspect of your movement I cordially approve. But the amendment was never passed. And one of the reasons the men wanted this amendment passed was that they saw that there was nothing in the Constitution to prevent federal judges from secularizing America by striking down Christian-based laws passed by the states. And think about it. Abortion, same-sex marriage, no prayer in schools, radical transgender rights, illegal to help a young person get rid of unwanted same-sex attractions, whatever. It's been these very courts which these men tried to prevent because they wanted to explicitly acknowledge Christ as King of the United States of America. If you leave it generic, it becomes generic and becomes watered down, and then you have some secular judges can overturn the desires of a Christian nation. And you know, we are having a new evangelization going on in the Catholic Church, and it's definitely worthwhile. 
I would suggest we have a new, new evangelization. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, remember Acts is the best evangelization the church has ever had. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Now let's bring this home. What difference does this make for our children and grandchildren and ourselves? There's one verse I'm going to give you, and it's an important verse, because this is what happens when you don't have Jesus Christ regularly proclaimed as king of the nation from pulpits, from microphones like this and Catholic radio stations, uh, in catechetical materials, in youth groups, and in homes. And this is what happens. Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. I'll repeat that. Judges 17 and verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, no kingship in Israel. There's no explicit kingship in the United States of America. Okay, I'm talking about the king over the nation. So every man decides what's right for himself or herself. This leads to anarchy. This leads to the collapse of a civilization. You can't have a civilization with every person determining, you know, what gender am I, what morality am I, I have, and you have to respect my right to uh, embrace a morality that overturns 2,000 years of Western civilization because it's right in my own eyes. Well, this all comes from Genesis chapter 3. Satan saying to Eve, God knows you eat of this, your eyes will be open. Yes, it will be open. You'll be able to determine right from wrong, just like God does. You'll pretend to be like God. And that's the ultimate idolatry, determining right and wrong for yourself. And it all begins with a loss of no king in the nation. And when we have so many young people today hearing nonstop, 24-7, do your own thing. What's right for you is right. And then on the other side, we hear a great silence, a great silence. We don't hear that voice that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and King of the United States of America. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 272 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.